everybody. This is Mark Vines, and welcome to The Mark Vines Show. And thank you once again for joining me on your one-stop shop for everything having to do with freedom, the Constitution, liberty, and just, frankly, the right way to live your life. And I wanted to bring to you a panel discussion that I had along with Gina Ciarcia, who is running for the United States House of Representatives, the 7th District here in Virginia. And she is a fantastic candidate in for a battle on June 21st, and that's going to be the primary election, and that will determine who the Republican candidate is going to be uh, for the midterm election coming up later on in November of this year. And so, uh, yeah, Gina had asked me to be a part of a panel discussion having to do with addiction, and a lot of it has to do with uh, my background in this area. Many of you know that I'm in training right now to become a licensed professional counselor in this area, and I've had discussions with uh, Gina, extensive conversations, because this is an issue that she feels very strongly about, has great opinions on, and I think would be a phenomenal candidate in the United States House of representatives dealing with addiction. And addiction has, uh, of course, the the personal uh, part of it, which I will talk about. And we, you'll hear from some uh, other panel members, uh, a woman named V. It's gonna talk, she's going to be talking about her personal story. And then James Chip Stewart, who was a member of the Reagan administration, and he'll talk a bit more about his background and looking at that the issue from a much higher level. And of course, Gina will be discussing her viewpoints on this issue. But it is an important issue. There's no one that I know of that is not affected or knows someone uh, that is not affected uh, with with addiction. It's something that we don't talk about. It's something that we need to address. We need to spend more time talking about. And this panel discussion discusses it. If you want to see this panel in its full and in the video, because it was Facebook live streamed, you can go to Gina Ciarcia for Virginia, Gina Ciarcia, Gina Ciarcia for Virginia, and you can see the video of the panel in its entirety. And I would encourage you to do that because it is a very important discussion. And so with that, this is going to be in three parts because it is a, a long discussion. It's about an hour and 40 minutes or so in total length. And I just want to bring it to you in segments. And so I will put it on here onto the Mark Vine show so you can hear it. But uh, like I say, it will be in three different sections or you can go on uh, the internet and just listen to the whole uh, program as it was. But I want to thank Gina for having me as part of that panel. I think that this is uh, public service work, uh, probably not more any more important work for the public right now than this. And so here, without any further ado, I want to just play part one for you. So here we go. Thank you all for coming this evening. I want to especially thank our panelists who have taken time out of their very busy schedules to spend uh, the evening with us. I'm excited about the discussion that we're getting ready to have. Uh, drug addiction has become a major issue in our community. And unfortunately, I feel like we're not talking about it uh, in a way that's productive, although it is an issue that affects most everyone, either directly or indirectly. Either you know a friend or a family member, someone close to you who has issues with addiction, or you know of someone through someone else. So it's a pervasive problem. And we see that there is a huge rise in uh, fentanyl overdose cases here in the United States. I like to call it fentanyl poisoning because I feel that many of those who um, succumb to this 
succumb unwittingly, not knowing that whatever drug they're taking has been laced with fentanyl and that the pill that they're getting ready to pop is actually going to send them to the grave. This is an issue that I think we need to discuss more and instead of just talking about talking about it, let's actually start to talk about it and figure out some plans to move forward. If you look at the statistics, fentanyl overdose is now the number one killer of young adults in the United States. So in the year 2020, there was over 100,000 cases of drug overdoses, most of those fentanyl or some type of synthetic opioid overdose. This is killing our future because we're talking about young adults in the age range of 18 to 45 years old. So this is America's future. So I want to introduce our panelists, and we'll begin with, at the end, Mike Van Meter. Mike Van Meter is a retired FBI supervisory special agent, an instructor. He was an instructor at the FBI National Academy where he taught a course on addiction entitled Leading At-Risk Employees, which focused on understanding alcoholism, prescription drug abuse, PTSD, suicide, and domestic violence. Mike has over 30 years of military, police, corrections, and FBI experience. And he's currently working on his master's degree in addiction counseling, integrated recovery for co-occurring disorders at the Hazelden Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies. He's also the host of a popular podcast called Recovery is Possible. So Mike, thank you so much you. for being with us. I know that you have a lot of experience and wisdom to draw from in our discussion. Thank you. Ms. Farida is here with us, and she's going to give us the personal side of um, experience with opioid addiction and how that affects family dynamics and the devastating effects of opioid addiction and what it does to um, relationships. And then here we have Chips Stewart. So Chips was the commander of criminal investigations at the Oakland Police Department. He then became a White House fellow and worked with U.S. Attorney General William French Smith. And then he was confirmed by the Senate as director of National <coughs> Institute of Justice, which is the principal research arm of the Department of Justice. And there they, they did a lot of studies, found direct correlation between drug use and crime rates. If one is using drugs, they are five to 10 times more likely to commit crimes. And through their research, they were able to recommend um, policy enforcement, education, and treatment options. So thank you panelists for being with us. And I'm going to turn it over to Mike, who's going to lead our panel discussion this evening. Thank you, Gina, um, for kicking us off here. And if you guys don't mind, well, I'll just stay seated if that's okay with everybody here. And just kind of talk a little bit about uh, my background and, and what I do and why I do it. And, and kind of follow up on some of the things that Gina said. Then I'll turn it over to um, and you can talk about your personal story and then wrap it up with um, with chips and then what will lead to what I was thinking is we can lead to then is Gina of course running for office and if she gets into office the things that she plans on doing about this this devastating issue and I, I really appreciate the fact that you 
kicked it off with the the number of deaths that were going on. You know, I heard yesterday on the the radio, there's a doctor, uh, Marty McCary, he just said that uh, recently, as of this week, we just got the numbers in on substance abuse deaths for 2020, which is the beginning of COVID, as, as we know. And the jump in, jump in substance abuse deaths is greater than the, the number of COVID deaths. Okay, what I just said, the number of drug-related deaths amongst young people is greater than the jump uh, in COVID deaths. But yet, you wouldn't know that because the press is not covering that, or you have to at least go dig for it deeply like, like I did. It's a real shame because this particular study that was referenced is only talking about young people. It's not talking about all people, and it's also not talking about the deaths that are associated with substance abuse that aren't directly related to that. And what I mean by that is auto accidents, suicides, domestic violence, all of the extraneous things that go along with addiction, that's not even covered in these studies. If you were to aggregate all of that and put it together, I would argue that there is nothing more important in the United States today than addiction. But yet we don't talk about it because of the stigma associated with, it, with addiction. And that's been a, a passion of mine since I retired. I retired from the FBI in, in 2019. And um, you, you might be asking, well, why is this guy involved in this field in the first place? Where does it, it come from? Well, the, the short answer to that is that I'm in recovery myself. I'm going on a decade of recovery. And I was blessed with the opportunity with, at the time, having been an instructor at the FBI Academy, uh, specifically the National Academy, which is a leadership program that the FBI has for police executives uh, across the country. And I noticed that in my field, now as I talk about this, understand that this applies to everybody in every profession, not just law enforcement, that just happens to be where I was. And I noticed that there was a gap with, in wellness, because that's the big discussion issue now in law enforcement, is the wellness and well-being of, of our officers. And I found through my own um, sort of internal polling, informal polling, if you will, that the big issue in law enforcement was addiction. Alcohol, of course, that's part of the culture, military and law enforcement, alcohol is a part of it. But then opiates are equaling, if not surpassing, alcohol as being the problem in our profession. Oftentimes, and you'll, you'll hear from V, oftentimes uh, this addiction, opiate addiction, starts with an injury. So you're prescribed medication for legitimate reasons, and then you become addicted to it because the opiate, the medications that are given, oxycodone, hydrocodone, and others, Percocet, are, are designed to target the centers of your brain. Very, very dangerous and ac actually probably more dangerous than um, alcohol. So we noticed this and what I found is I started asking people, and I'll even ask the people here in the audience, and those of you watching this on Facebook Live can, can answer yourselves. Of course, I can't see you on Facebook Live, but I can see the folks here. Who in here the kids may not know, but who in here is not affected by somebody in their life, whether it's yourself, whether it's somebody that you're related to, work with, for, et cetera, et cetera. Who does not know someone that has an addiction issue or met someone? Okay, I don't see any hands. So we all know somebody, right? Mm -hmm. Guess what? I've been asking that question since 2016 in front of every single group. I've ever been in front of. Do you know that I've never been in a group where there was even one person that raised their hand and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Folks, that's bad. 
That is something that we should be talking about every single day, but we're not. So I went on a campaign, again, uh, blessed with the opportunity of the people that I worked for at the FBI Academy recognized that they agreed with me and we developed a course called Leading At-Risk Employees. We, we uh, helped design it. My wife was a big part of designing this course. She did the, the family side of it. And we developed this course, which is still taught at the FBI Academy today, targeting programs, policies, procedures that agencies should have to help their employees. But again, all of the principles we discuss apply to the families as well. Now, having said that, we developed that course, and I go around the country and I teach about this, but where it relates to today is when I met Gina Ciarcia, who's running for the uh, 7th House District here, we were in a discussion about this, and we shared the same value in that understanding that drug addiction, or addiction in general, I should say, because we're not even talking about the process addictions, is a huge issue that needs to be addressed and is not being addressed, and in fact, we are doing many things in this country right now at the national level that are actually defeating any progress that we should be making in this area. And we're going to talk about that a bit more, all of this leading into hearing from Gina as to what her plans are in addressing this issue. So I just wanted to kick it off with that. And we're very fortunate to have V and Chips here tonight, uh, wealth of experience, some great people. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to V. And if you would like, just maybe kind of share your personal experience with that. And she, so, um, she promised me she's not going to take any more than three or four hours tonight to tell the story. Uh, you'll be home in bed. No, I'm just kidding with you. But with that, V, here you go. Thank you, Mike, and thank you for having me. Um, this is actually the first time that I've ever spoken on a panel. I have a lot of support, um, my groups that I do, and so I'm nervous, but I also feel that it's an opportunity for me to grow. Um, so I have a husband, he's retired law enforcement, and um, we had to fight for his retirement. Um, he sustained trauma and it was untreated. And after several incidents, um, there was no debriefing, there was no support. That was the culture back when he was in law enforcement. Um, and I'm so grateful and thankful to hear that it's changing um, because now there is a different perspective on how trauma in law enforcement and really first responders is treated. Um, but he did sustain physical injuries and he was treated with opiates and he did become um, dependent and he did seek treatment thankfully um, and did really well the trauma resurfaced and there was actually now benzos introduced which is um, also I think uh, something that needs to be that people need to be more aware of benzodiapines and the psychiatrist um, I think that what I could say is that we have really great doctors, and they know how to prescribe, um, but they don't know how to treat patients when they become addicted. That's my experience. Um, and so the community that I have been embraced by is unfortunately not the white coats with degrees. It's been the community who have experienced what I've experienced, my husband experienced, um, which is typically parents and spouses and loved ones, and we are one voice. So when Mike talked about this forum, as scared as I was, 
I am so grateful and so thankful because I'm so proud of my husband um, and his hard work. Um, but I know there needs to, it needs to be talked about even more. Um, another journey I want to take you through is that um, also started with a psychiatrist is my son. My son is um, 18 months in recovery now, and he's doing fantastic. But similarly, he went he went to see a psychiatrist, anxiety, depression, eating disorder, um, and low self-esteem. And I trusted the doctor again, and turned out to not be. Um, it turned out to not help him. He actually became addicted and started self-medicating. Um, there was an overdose, um, and I agree, I think it's fentanyl poisoning. Um, and once again, they know how to prescribe, not all doctors, and I don't wanna say all doctors, but they know how to prescribe, but I just wish there was more awareness on how to treat the addiction. Um, we've spent over $50,000 um, to have my son um, have the connections and resources, and I would spend every last penny I had if somebody said, this is what is going to, to save your son. Um, and thankfully, he's doing really well. That's another piece I want to bring awareness to is that this disease isn't just a 28-day program that's right. covered by insurance. It's not. It's to get good treatment. We need support. We need help. Parents, loved ones, families. Um, but I do want to reiterate that thankfully they're doing so well. Um, I think this affects all people. I know that my son and my husband did not say, when I grow up, this is what I want my life to look like. And it's not a moral decision. Um, and we need to work together to find solutions and raise awareness. That's why, again, I'm so grateful I'm here. Um, I was really scared, like I mentioned, because I don't want to be judged. I, feel, I don't want to feel like a bad mom or a bad wife. Um, but I did this because I care. And I want to at least send this message so that it will be carried by at least one person in this audience so that, so that we keep moving forward um, and raise more awareness and find solutions and save lives. Thank you. Thank you, V. Uh, well said, and I am <clears throat> I'm so grateful that you're here today. Thank you. And uh, your inaugural presentation is uh, stunning, so thank you very much. Uh, I've changed my remarks based on what you just said, because I think it's important that we all sort of understand the devastation of this, uh, this epidemic. And uh, not only did I, I have a personal experience, both as professionally with, with uh, addiction, but I, I, I also uh, became dependent on alcohol and went through treatment uh, about 26 years ago and haven't had a drink since. And when I come through, uh, when I, they prescribe oxycodone, they give you a big bottle of pills and uh, everybody says, try to take the Tylenol instead. 
And uh, I did, and I was able to work my way through it. But my daughter, who's a, a medical school uh, professor, says, well, we don't, we, don't, we don't train anybody in addiction. We tell them that we want to keep the pain down so, so they're not sort of evil gut people. But they're trying to treat the pain, and they don't realize the consequences. So I want to talk a little bit about the consequences and some of the data from the research from a really professional perspective. But I have a son as well. I have two sons. And my oldest son, Andy, is a very successful attorney, owns a racehorse, has a Porsche, has a nightclub, and at 47, died of an overdose. So I true understand the tragedy to lose a son to this disease. His idea was, well, I've got this under control. It's, I can handle this. And he didn't realize the seriousness of it. So I, I have a personal loss that uh, here's a successful guy with all the trappings of the outside, but has some gaps somewhere in his heart. And I wasn't able to reach him. And it was, it's a heartbreaker. So I just wanted to share that. So that Andy's death does not go unappreciated and can stand as a, as a help to other parents who, who might be able to respond to that uh, in a better way than I, than I was. But uh, let me just go to my, because part of this panel that Gina is very interested in is that she doesn't want to go to Congress uninformed about this. Going to Congress with a passion, but not having a sense of sort of what, what the numbers show. And I just, I, I want to go through them fairly quickly. You know, I was the director of the National Institute of Justice for President Reagan and President Bush. And um, one of the things that was very clear is that drugs and violent crime often go hand in hand. And that sometimes is overlooked because we think of it as a personal difficulty and somebody would just, but it has consequences because it creates victims. It creates tragic victims. and. With fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, uh, that has served to replace lots of drug use that was on the street beforehand, and also is lacing other drugs that lead to overdoses, because you can't tell what's going to happen when you take a very powerful drug. This is much more powerful than heroin. And as a result, people really can't gauge what the reaction is going to be. Now, um, as, as Mike uh, pointed out, the deaths have quadrupled. Now, I just want to give you kind of a feel for this, all right? They kill in the, um, you know, we're all reading about the, the terrible gun deaths that are occurring in our schools and churches and supermarkets and other places. And yet, more people are killed with opioids than are killed with not only just guns, but also through uh, disease and other things. This is a huge epidemic that seems to be right under the surface of people's consciousness. They don't realize how serious it has become. So in 1999, we lost about 8,000 people, right? And during that time, the kind of enforcement we did is we looked for street dealers, people who were in back alleys or in public parks that would sell drugs to other people and recruit people to use drugs. So the enforcement was fairly easy, and the police became very good at you know, catching drug dealers or low-level dealers and then trying to work up, and DEA was working from the top down. In 2015, 
the deaths from uh, heroin and opioid synthetics rose to 33,000. So it went from 8,000 to 33,000. In 2022, it's 108,000 deaths. That's a long way from 33,000 in just five years. And um, what, what has happened is that the market itself has changed significantly. So law enforcement is at a huge disadvantage. Parents are at a huge disadvantage and drug counselors are at a huge disadvantage because you don't buy it from a dealer on the street. You use the internet and it comes through FedEx or UPS or DHL and it comes as a normal sort of brown red package that comes in the mail in an envelope and people who are young, teenagers who are very bad at rec you know, recognizing risk can try this out and they die from overdoses. Now, well, that's a tragedy and, that the, and we in law enforcement are way behind the curve because most of the opioids are produced either here in the United States by well-respected uh, pharmaceutical companies or in China. And it's a lot cheaper to buy the drugs in China on the internet. I mean, I can't go to China and buy drugs, but with the internet, it's just like that. It's unbelievable. The credit card, your address, and in two days or four days, it shows up as an anonymous kind of envelope in the mail, and that's where the drugs are coming from. And it's almost impossible to ask our customs and enforcement people or our DEA people to stop that, that absolute flood that's coming in. So uh, that, has, that is a game changer that's going on. The other thing that I want to bring up is that the imprisonment rates fell from 2009 to 2020. We, you know, there's this whole idea that, oh, you're locking too many people up, you know, all these people who are in victimless crime using drugs, and so don't lock them up, you know, you need to do something else. Well, it turns out <clears throat> that the research that we've done, and it's, it's very extensive, over 20 years, we have lots and lots of uh, 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 subjects in this research that shows that, uh, that demonstrate the accelerating factor that drugs cause people to commit crimes. And what, the reason it accelerates this is they have a compulsion to use the drug, but it also costs them some money. So in order to get enough money to finance it, they commit small-time crimes, bigger-time crimes, and so on and so forth. And uh, the crime rates, if you've watched around a little bit, you see have been going up like mad over the last like four or five years. And most prisoners, we interviewed just you know, thousands of them, uh, who were been arrested for violent crime report that they were under the influence of drugs and alcohol when they committed the crime. So I began to think about, okay, is there a relationship between drug use and alcohol and violent crime? And so we did some research on that. And uh, in Baltimore, we looked at people who were opioid addicts and the rate of crime when they were using the drugs was about 20 times higher than when they weren't using drugs. So the same person could be either very dangerous or reasonably moderately a risk. Very dangerous or a moderate risk. Who do you want to let back out onto the street? The very dangerous who are compelled to get the stuff or somebody who's very moderate, low risk of you know? Well, they said, we can't figure out how to do that because we can't separate them. We dealt up with a very simple program. It involves testing. 
So if a person is arrested and they're going through the booking process, they are tested to see whether they're using drugs or not. And if they're using drugs, they then say, in order to get bail and be released, we want to be sure that you're not a risk to the rest of the community. And so we're going to ask that you submit to a drug um, uh, test randomly once a week. Or if you don't want to do that, we'll just keep you in, in jail here until your trial date. And it turns out that most of the people said, hey, listen, I, I, I think I can get off the drugs. I'll, I'll go ahead and try that. And so you test them. And I, I don't want to go into a long, long thing, but it turns out that if they turn up with, with a, 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 a positive test for, for drug use again, that rather than throw the book at them and put them away for a year, it turns out that if you just inconvenience them, like you bring them in four times a week instead of once, okay, and then if they keep doing it, you put them in for eight hours, and then you put it, the reason the inconvenience part actually works and it doesn't cost as much money is because when you say you're going away for two years, the guy says goodbye to his girlfriend, goodbye to my car, goodbye to my apartment. But if you put him in for eight hours or one day, he's got to come back out and make enough money to still pay for his car, take his girlfriend out, and, and also to, uh, to uh, engage in treatment to keep from, from getting it. So it's a very inexpensive way, comparatively inexpensive way, and it doesn't violate people's rights because you don't have an absolute right to bail. Okay, you have a right to be considered for bail based on risk, the flight risk and the risk of creating other victims. So it's something that can be done that A, doesn't violate the rights, and B, actually helps, helps the person who's a drug addict, and it also prevents more victims. So that's one thing that I think that, that, that really could do that's based on research. I mean, thousands of cases. Now, um, the other thing that I wanted to add was that I think it's very important to, to stimulate uh, education. It's not just enforcement, but I think education. That worked very well against smoking, uh, Gina. If you remember, we had Virginia's a great place for tobacco, right? And smoking is killing people, not only the smoker, but also the people around the smoker. And uh, it was, you know, there's all kinds of ploys by the, by the tobacco companies to keep any kind of legislation from happening. But the research showed that there was a definite connection, and, and subsequently, the very good campaigns made it uncool to smoke. Mm -hmm. Remember Joe the Camel? And they said, you're targeting right at the mm -hmm. kids. This is a really good, good way. If we can do this for the opioids and other things, rather than being scared straight, if you can just sort of say, hey, look, this is not cool. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to try it, because it's definitely not cool. In fact, if you see people who use it after a while, you can see they're definitely not cool. Okay, uh, there's nothing attractive about a drug user. So uh, I would really encourage the idea of using uh, uh, the DARE program, it was well established and has, has done a lot of good, but has fallen out of favor because they said, well, it didn't show much difference. Well, a lot of people remember take, going through the DARE program. Mm -hmm. and so it, it has left an impression that I thought was positive. Um, but the researchers weren't able to find any difference. But I would encourage that because I think there's a lot to it. And the, and the final thing I'd like to say is that Congress can really help, but it needs to be informed. And the, most of our Congress people are so busy trying to raise funds and they're so busy talking about other things that they really don't, they can't get informed and they depend on their staffs. 
They become captured by that. And Gina is taking the, taking the time and, and, and bringing people like Mike and V and, v and, 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 and myself in who know about this from a personal level and also from a scientific level about the, the, the tragedy, the disaster, and the victimizations that it, it has done. So I, I, in closing, in my opening remarks, I just want to say that, that I have a personal loss that as I continue to struggle with, and it's been two years now, and uh, I, I don't think we all appreciate how you can back into drug use. You don't go into it thinking like, okay, I'm going to be an addict. Mm -hmm. Nobody does that. But somebody goes in and says, oh, I'd like to try it. it. You know, I could be cool. I could party. I could, you know, enjoy life. And the problem is we have to do something about making it less cool. The other thing is we have to do a better job of enforcement. And then finally, what Mike pointed out in a very uh, forceful way is this, this idea that treatment can and does make a difference. But as V said, 28 days is insufficient. I went through it 28 days. It was not sufficient. I had to go on for about another nine months before I was able to sort of make it and return to a productive member of society. And uh, there are people who never reach that stage and who relapse frequently and we can't give up on the relapsers because eventually many of the relapsers get it. And that's an important, an important feature to know. So uh, Mike, if I could uh, pass it on to you and you can give it to Gina, that would be great. That's part one of the addiction panel that Gina Ciarcia put on. Again, check out the entire discussion on Gina Ciarcia for Virginia on Facebook and just look her up on the internet and you can find this video. It's very, very important information. And I know that the reaction from the crowd was very positive. Uh, the comments I got both in person and online are all like, why are we not talking about this more often? We should be talking about this more often. It really is affecting the the nation. It's affecting our people. This is, you know, really in a lot of ways, this is a national defense issue even because if we have a drugged, addicted society, then that's not good for us. And I know that any opponents or enemies that we have around the globe will benefit from the fact that we are suffering as a nation. So I know that this was important information for all of you to listen to. I really welcome your feedback and your comments because I just know that this is something that's near and dear to everybody's heart. And this is going to be a big campaign issue. And folks, Gina is the only candidate amongst all the candidates uh, in the, on the Republican ticket. And the Democrats are certainly not talking about this, but amongst the the Republican ticket, no offense to them, but none of them are talking about this issue, but Gina is. And so if this is a, an issue that you feel is important, um, remember, elections have consequences. They do matter. So please get out and vote. Uh, if you live in the 7th District, Congressional District, remember, Gina Ciarcia is running. Get out there and vote, folks. It matters. It really does. And so with that, I'll be talking with you guys soon, and I'll be posting the other two segments of this vital conversation soon. You guys take care. This is Mark Vines. We'll be talking with you soon. Bye-bye.